Hey, hey everyone. My name is Agnes Chen and this is a Rise Resilient podcast where we gather and connect so that all can rise resilient. I'm so excited to share this conversation, episode eight with Ali Rutger, who is an educator, a graduate student and a therapist in training. I found Ali, who is at the mindseat underscore, through the wonderful world that can be social media, where she passionately advocates for a trauma-sensitive world that adapts to the needs of survivors. Ali has such a beautiful way of sharing her wisdom and her story. Throughout this conversation, Ali encourages us to see trauma and healing through a systemic lens and invites us to reimagine resilience and vulnerability and their place in our classrooms. I'm not going to lie, I use the word amazing a lot in this episode because, well, as you'll hear, Ali is really amazing in her ability to invite us to remain curious about the people we journey alongside in this life. Hi. Hi, Ali. How are you? Really good. Thank you. How are you? Amazing. Oh, I'm so glad that this is working, that we can connect. Okay, so where are you, Ali? Yeah, I um I actually live in Jordan right now. My partner oh. and I and our dogs, we have been living in Amman for just over a year now. <laughs> Amazing. And you're you're originally from Toronto, right? Yes. Yeah. Amazing. A fellow Canadian <laughs> abroad. Wow. Oh, yes. I'm so glad that we can connect. I think it's just incredible. I know. This pa- is really cool. Yeah. The power of social media, the, the great yeah. disconnector, but yet the great connector. <laughs> I know. And I feel that so much during the pandemic, don't you? Like I just, I don't know totally. that I would have made so many connections online if I didn't have um, that deep desire to do that because I was disconnected from the people that I'm used to seeing all the time. So it just, I felt like I needed more and more. Totally. I, mm-hmm. I agree. It's, and, and it is, I think too, sort of in with advocacy work, it's such a, yeah. it's a really beautiful way to connect with people who are doing similar work and who really have a passion for that. It's a nice outlet. Mm-hmm. Totally. Oh, well, I'm, I, I love everything you're doing. And I just think um, it's you. funny when you come across certain people or, you know, even in just the, the small talk that happens between posts, it's, um, yeah. you can kind of really, you, you start to feel the heart behind something and that there is more to it. And I feel that yeah. from you and I just think what you're doing oh. and everything you share is really great. So I'm excited to learn more about where the heart of this comes from and, and, you know, you know, how this um, intersects with the work that you're doing as an educator and as a therapist in training. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that's right. And I'm just glad I'm, I'm grateful that you invited me to do that because I, I think that even though there is this connection on social media, there is a lot behind it, right. That we don't know, of course. And um, this is giving me an opportunity to think a little more deeply about why I do what I do um, on Instagram, but also in my, you know, my work. So I'm, I love how you're emphasizing, you know, talking about stories on your podcasts mm-hmm. and people's backgrounds and what motivates them. You know, on that note, that's sort of a nice transition to talk about, you know, so I found you over Instagram. You have, yes. you are the mind seed um, on Instagram, but you also mm-hmm. are a part of something called um, the allied mind. So what yeah. was the journey that brought you to using social media sort of as an outlet to educate, I guess, you know, and advocate? Yeah, it was, um, it's kind of been 
a long-term thing for me. I've always used the internet in different ways to connect with other people and also to create. I've always been a creative person. I love um, photography. I love writing. Um, and so I've had, you know, various blogs and various social media accounts over the years, but nothing that really kind of stuck or, or that captured my attention the way that the mental health space on um, Instagram has. So I wouldn't say that it was born from something that I felt I needed to do. It was more like I observed this amazing space on Instagram where therapists and educators and therapists in training and parents and all of the people who, um, you know, make up the strength of a society, if you will, are coming together and sharing their perspective and doing it in a way that was super intentional. And so I didn't know that that was a possibility. I was thinking, um, you know, maybe there's some barriers to doing that. And I thought this is something that's more personal. This is something that's more, uh, maybe I should keep to myself. So it didn't even occur to me until I started, until I started, sorry, seeing that happening, um, you know, in just my regular scroll, I guess. And mm-hmm. it took me a while. It took me a while to kind of get the confidence to post things that are really on my mind. So when I started the account, I was just posting things like direct quotes from other people who are much more accomplished than me, if you know what I mean. So like, totally, my- yeah. <laughs> I get it. From my reading or from, you know, books that I had been um, into or articles and things like that. I'm like, you know, this is, this is, you know, maybe information that people will be into. I'm not sure if it will go anywhere. And then I really started finding, I think, you know, as I got deeper into graduate school, I started finding my voice more and feeling more like I was coming into my own um, philosophical orientation around what it means to be a therapist in training, but also an educator um, who's passionate about working with young people. And so I thought, okay, maybe there's a chance for me to share, you know, more of my voice and more of my opinion. And let's see if people um, kind of vibe with that. And let's see if I can connect with some people who think in similar or different ways. It's kind of where mm-hmm. it came from. Amazing. Yeah. And it's obviously resonating with a lot of people. It is with me for sure. And I think, Thank you. Uh, I think, you know, you are first an educator and now you are in school to yeah. become a counselor is what, what it sounds like. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I that's think. right. Yeah. So, you know, an educator, first of all, that's a huge role. Like I bow down to educators. I, my, you know, I have kids and I, and yeah. I'm just so grateful for the good teachers that are out there who are supporting our kids. So what brought you to be an educator? Where did that come from? And, and, and how are you incorporating, you know, trauma awareness? Cause I know that that's a big part of what you're doing. Yeah. So how did I become an educator? It was something that it was one of those things that it was a choice that I didn't know would become such a big part of my life and who I am at the time. Um, when I was making choices around what I should do, I was really scattered when I was a younger person in terms of my life direction and things like that. So I have wanted to be um, everything that you could possibly imagine, every profession, <laughs> every and you know all of them have to do with with helping other people and being in that role of a, you know, a carer, a nurturer. And so um, when all of that dust kind of settled and I felt, I think, pressure to choose what's going to be the next direction that I take and I need to figure it out now, um, 
I landed on teaching because I was really hoping for some stability um, in terms of the career that I could have. And then mm-hmm. when I began teaching, that's when my mind was really open to how deep the possibilities are for teachers to make a difference with young people. And so it wasn't until I was partway through my first year as a teacher that I really, um, that it really captured my attention as something that this is, this is part of me now. So it took me some time. And then once it did, um, I really felt that it was a place that I could, it was a creative outlet for me. Um, and it was a design outlet for me in terms of how can we make this environment that kids are in every single day as best as it could possibly be. So that's kind of been my objective over the last few years um, in my career as a teacher. Amazing. And then so how did you, you know, was it sort of a natural progression? Where When did you realize that, you know, or when did you start learning about creating sort of these trauma-aware environments within mm-hmm. your your teaching role? Yeah. So before I knew what the term trauma-informed meant, I always had this feeling um, around children who have challenging behaviors or who seem to have a challenging home life or are facing some kind of adversity that we're aware of. I always just had this feeling that we weren't doing it right. So even before I had read any books or seen that term used, I just felt there's something missing here. Um, you know, there's something missing in the traditional approach that we're taking with young people. Um, and not just young people who we know have been through something, but just young people in general. Um, and so it wasn't until I started graduate school to become a therapist that I really understood um, the depths and the impacts that trauma can have. And of course, I started connecting that with the students that I've known and do know now. And I started to think about what this looks like for educators and for young people. So it was kind of a semi-recent realization yeah. for me, but one that was kind of like brewing, I guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can I ask, yeah. when you say sort of the conventional way we teach kids, what does that conventional way look like? And how mm-hmm. can, you know, incorporating trauma-informed care into education, you know, transform the education system, mm. in your opinion? Oh my goodness, that's a good question. No, take a moment. I totally everything you just said, it really resonates with me. You know, it's um, how you said, you know, when you went into teaching, you didn't recognize what need was there until you were there and you saw the potential that you have as an educator. And for me, you know, I, um, I, I I grew up in a chaotic environment and school was Mm -hmm. such a safe place for me. And I'm so grateful for the teachers that I had. And I know that that's not true for everybody because I was one of those people who sort of dissociated and was quiet so as a teacher, I imagine mm-hmm. it's a lot easier to show that compassion to a student that looks like that. Um, but from your perspective, yeah. you know, after recognizing what trauma is and or what it could look like and the approach that you could take to support a student, how did that shift happen in you? And, yeah. and, and what does that actually look like in your practice? Okay. So, I mean, I guess the, the, when I, when I say the conventional approach, I, a word that often comes to mind for me um, that's problematic around education and schools is this idea of like compliance and that we want Mm -hmm. a bunch of different people with their own backgrounds and their own context to kind of fit into a certain mold. And I think that this has been well acknowledged in education as a problem and something that needs to be worked on. And so the approach has kind of been, okay, well, let's be more holistic. 
let's not only think about academics, but let's attend to lots of different things um, in a child's life. You know, their social development, um, their behavior, how they're feeling, um, where they're at, what their needs are. And so I think that that's an overall really good shift. I think that that the intention behind that shift is to take better care of the students who we spend all of this time with every day. Um, but I think that the missing piece might be that different perspective that you have once you start thinking in a way that's more inclusive of um, trauma and trauma mm -hmm. sensitivity and trauma awareness. So what that looks like, I guess, um, you know, and it's not always perfect. It's always a work in progress when you're trying to implement trauma-informed care. But what it looks like is, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, I started with compliance. And I think that what this implies is that there's a lot of um, onus on the children to be a certain way and to have certain traits and to fit into a certain mold. But I think with this shift towards trauma-informed, what we get is that it's actually the adults who are more at the center of the changes that need to happen. And so you're a little more aware of yourself, um, how regulated you are on a day-to-day -day basis, what's making you feel activated in the classroom and what's not, and kind of attending to yourself in order to better meet the needs of the children. And so that's kind of, I guess, paradigm shift that I think about. I love that. You know, can I ask? Yeah. Um, and maybe this is something, you know, I'm not an educator, but on, on, I, I have been a student. And yeah, I, and I, of course. So I like all of us. So how um, for you coming into that awareness, what sort of biases and blind spots do you feel teachers need to be checking in on? I think that when I'm imagining trauma sensitivity and trauma awareness in schools, something that comes to mind a lot is the way that we respond to behavior. So as a classroom teacher, you're, you know, you're in the room with a lot of different students and a lot of times behavior is the main window into how people are feeling in the day, you know, in your classroom and how things are going. So of course there's other things that are going on beneath the surface um, that we can't see, but often behavior becomes this thing that we kind of hyper-focus on and gets commented on in parent conferences and on report cards and things like that. And we kind of just look at it as static and we look at it like there's traits that some children have and there's some traits that children do not, certain children do not have. And I think that when we are looking at behavior from this kind of like deficit perspective or deficit model, um, what children are not able to do rather than what they are able to do, then that represents kind of a certain place where we could really be changing our perspective and approaching behavior in a different way with kind of more of a curiosity rather than the way that we often do, which is it can be a little bit reactive. And I mm. think that there's something there's something that happens when a, a student is you know having some challenging behaviors in the classroom. There can be a tendency to, to take that personally as if we've done something wrong. Um, teachers are often trained to, um, to take a lot of responsibility for how things are going in the classroom. And if a child is kind of having these challenging behaviors, it can sometimes be perceived as something that the adult is doing wrong. And so we want to correct that and we want to keep the classroom, you know, the way that we've been trained the classroom should look. 
And so it can be really challenging for, for us to think about behavior in a different way. So I think that it presents a hopeful um, spot for us to work on, you know, with behavior, but it's also, it's also really challenging. That is huge to recognize that it's, you know, we can often say we just have to be more empathetic and more yeah. compassionate. And it sounds very lighthearted and, and, and fun and fluffy and, and easy, yeah. but you know, this idea that it is hard and it's challenging and it takes a lot of intentional effort. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I think that that's so beautifully said. I love that you brought up, you know, sometimes it's, you know, we're focusing on the deficit that kids have or bring and we're, you know, how can we change that without really focusing on the strengths? And so, this idea of resilience mm-hmm. sort of comes into that. And I would love to chat. You know, I I, I know I messaged you recently about um, you had a really beautiful post. You incorporated healing into this concept of resilience yeah. and what, what you know, the balance between the two. And it really um, resonated with me because I, when I think of my healing journey, I actually call it my resilience journey. And I, cause I always I think of my that. resilience journey as all over the place, right? It's not linear. It's mm-hmm. not, it's not a steady uphill there are these sort of, you know, hills and valleys within the resilience journey itself. And I really loved how you approach that. So I'd love to hear first, what is resilience to to you? And how do you support, you know, the children in your classroom? Mm -hmm. How do you support their resilience? Yeah, so I, the the post that you're referring to, um, with the resilience versus healing, that intention was really to shed light on process versus outcome. And I loved how you said your resilience journey, because I think that really um, touches on the fact that based on research, resilience is a process. It's not something that is necessarily a trait, like you have it and they don't, or I have it and you don't. It's not something that you just have or don't have. It's something that is really interactive between the individual and the environment. And it's something that can be built and fostered. And so I wanted to just touch on this idea that it's important for us to really rethink this word resilience. And I think that we actually have to rethink this position that it's an inherently good thing. And of course, we want to think about resilience as a good thing, because in the most basic definition, it's, you know, um, being able to bounce back um, after adversity or through adversity. And I think that that is wonderful and, of course, important. But I just think that we need to scrutinize terms like resilience when we're using them with young people, and especially when we're using them with young people who have been marginalized or who are vulnerable for some reason. And so I really just wanted to invite people into thinking a little bit more about what resilience means. Oh my goodness. I love that, Ali. And I just want to read the post that you, that it said that really resonated with me and, sure, yeah. and then go back to everything you just said. So you wrote, what if instead of glorifying resilience, we truly valued healing? And I think everything you just said, oh my goodness. So there's so many thoughts that go through my mind. You know, I think a huge part and as an educator, you know, I'm a nurse. And mm-hmm. so I don't know often what traumas or adversity my patients and I imagine you with your students have gone through. Right. We don't always know. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessary for us to know 
what has happened. What is the, the message that you, you feel really is in terms of how we can support the healing of another individual? You know, whether it's us as caregivers or teachers or us between you and I as we are chatting here, you know, what role do you think we have in supporting another's healing? Oh my goodness. I think that if you, if you look at resilience as integral to healing, which, which I do, and I do see the, the correlations between resilience and healing and that one can be born from the other and one is necessary for the other to occur. If you use this ecological model of resilience, like, and thank you so much mm-hmm. for sending me, um, Dr. Umgar's work, this ecological model of resilience, I think is really vital for us to think about when we're asking that question of how do we invite people into this place of healing? Because when you do that, you can see how big of a role schools, um, hospitals, clinics play in this um, in this outcome that we all wish for is to reduce the likelihood that children are re-traumatized in those situations. Um, but we can also think about everyday things that occur that we take for granted, how those can be really different in a way that really allows children to access the strengths that they already possess and to promote their healing. And so this is kind of a shift towards like seeing any space, any any obligatory space that a children a child moves through in their life as a potential site of healing and resilience. And I think that it's really these um, small, subtle, yet high impact shifts that can make a huge difference. And so mm-hmm. I think about things like um, scheduling. I think about structures within the school day. I think about hiring practices for administrators who are trying to choose teachers to come to their schools. I think about teacher professional development. And I think about even the physical environment of the school um, or the hospital or wherever it is that you are interacting with young people and how those kind of things that are everyday normal stuff can be shifted to really allow children to access what they already have, which is this amazing capacity for resilience and strength. I love that. I would love to hear your perspective on, you know, you did a series with somebody else and mm-hmm. it was, um, you know, meeting children where they are at. Yeah. And I loved it because you really did pull in, obviously, the social determinants of health. There was a little bit of Maslow's hierarchy in there. <laughs> so can you speak to a little bit about why, you know, that intersection of mental health and social justice is so important? Yeah, absolutely. And I just, I, thank you for bringing up Um, that work that we've been doing with the Allied Minds Collective, that has been something that was kind of, I think it's relevant to this discussion, kind of how it came about, because it's so interesting on social media, how there's um, all of this advocacy for mental health um, through a social justice lens. And yet there's no way for one single person on social media to really bring in and honor all the different perspectives that can possibly speak to that. And so the Allied Minds is a collection of different people um, who work within the mental health space and folks who um, really bring their own perspective to that work and their own um, their own backgrounds as well and lived experience. And we share information and advocate around what it means to really take that lens with social justice and mental health. And it's been important for me, you know, as a learner as well, because there's been some, you know, peer support aspect to it 
too. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the importance of social justice and mental health, I mean, they're really inextricable to me. And so if we think about Mm -hmm. the systems that we live within and the capacity that those systems have to impact our lives, then we know that the people who are coming in to see us, whether it's in our classrooms or our clinics or at the doctor's office, they have been impacted by trauma. And depending on their background, and the way they've been moving through the world, the way that their generation, the generations before them have been moving th- through the world, just as you mentioned, those are going to be relevant to their well-being. And so I think that we can't really separate the two. So that's why we mm-hmm. advocate for bringing a different perspective to mental health, which is that the social structures that exist when are oppressive or that are um, that marginalize people those do have an impact on on people's mental health. Mm-hmm. I think it is, again, sort of, you know, a paradigm shift in how we look at mental health and we put the onus on the individual. Yeah. And it really moves to this, um, you know, this collective responsibility that we have in supporting each other. And I think, curious to know your thoughts on this. You know, I um, whenever I hear the idea of, but this idea of choice and, you know, you often don't have a choice. Right. I consider it a circumstance versus a choice. Yeah. You can't make good choices when your circumstances aren't set up in a way those resources aren't accessible. And I think that social justice piece is yeah. huge in that, in us understanding that. I love that. Yeah. And I think that you just touched on something uh, that brings me back to that idea of like glorifying strength and glorifying resilience. And that when that's being done for people who have faced injustices that nobody should have to face. That's problematic, you know, when we're saying, look, you can get through anything. Mm. It doesn't matter that you've had things set up against your well-being in the system that you're living in. Oh, look how much you can endure. And I think that this really invites us into a different way of thinking where it's not how much can kids endure at school, for example, but what would it be like to actually ensure that the kids that are going to school have access to resources that are relevant to them. Um, And then they really invite them to tap into their own curiosities and strengths and intellect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yes. That idea of glorifying resilience. I just want to write that down because I think it's hard to dream and hope and see what can be better tomorrow when you're constantly in a stressed state. And so when we don't have those resources Um, we don't have access to those resources. It's hard to allow kids that space to grow, you know, with that glorified Mm -hmm. resilience that we keep saying. So I think that that is, yeah, I, I, um, I'm probably going to want to talk about that another time, glorified resilience. And then, you know, (laughs) and if we don't even know if we, if we don't have a proper grasp on who it is we're educating, then it's impossible for us to even meet those needs that we we see. And so I think that can really, um, it can really breed this idea that we just see children and we see the circumstances that have marginalized them. And we define them by that rather than really thinking and being curious about who they are and what they're inherently capable of, if they had the right circumstances that felt relevant for them. And so I think a lot of times we, because of this whole pull up your bootstraps, capitalistic ideal, where if I can do it, you can do it, then we have this idea that certain communities have been, you know, dealing with poverty or addiction or um, dealing with just systemic racism and that kind of marginalization. Then we have this kind of idea that this is what's, this is some kind of like issue that's inherent 
And then they're coming to school with maybe adaptations that we don't deem to be acceptable for school. And so I think that this just creates this really, really problematic and challenging divide between teachers, especially teachers who belong to the dominant group, and then students who perhaps belong to the marginalized group. And all of these ways that these children have learned to adapt and survive despite adversity, they get looked at as atypical. And then there's just more and more challenge between bridging that gap between what the teachers think is okay and what the students have learned. We need to redefine what what a risk factor is for certain measures. So earlier I was saying how we're trying to be more holistic in our in the way that we're supporting students and a lot of times that means thinking about what makes certain students at risk. But then there's this idea that we start viewing certain identities as inherently risky to have and you know, if we really think about it, if there's students who are thriving in their own communities that are steeped in, you know, culturally re- relevant practices that are very typical and very revered almost, then they're barely hanging on in school. I mean, what really is the risk factor? Is it the school or is it the person in their identity? So there could be resilience that's showing up in our students or in our patients, but it could be showing up in ways that we're not necessarily comfortable with or we that we don't recognize as the conventional image of resilience or strength and that can you know that can activate us that can activate our nervous system or the part of us that feels afraid for them in their pro social development and this can this is the i think the exact tension that really requires our curiosity and our openness if we're going to do this kind of work. I'm going to keep going down this path. And I, I'm curious to know your thoughts on, you know, when this whole idea of being vulnerable came out and we, we kept saying, you know, you need to right. be more vulnerable. It, um, it triggered something in me for sure, because when you, when you meet people or, you know, I work in a space where there is, um, you know, lots of people are struggling with homelessness, you know, experiencing, um, you know, lots of things that we typically don't see as mm-hmm. resilient. This idea of seeing that individual in front of us and, and, you know, we sort of put again, vulnerability on a pedestal, someone who spoke, you know, on a blog mm-hmm. or on a stage, that's with being really vulnerable without recognizing sort of the vulnerability it takes to be a student in a classroom who's experiencing adversity at home and then to have to sit in a class mm-hmm. and conform to what the school is telling them is appropriate behavior. So I'm I'm curious to know your thoughts on that is, you know, seeing a student as, you know, we see it as misbehavior, but to lose your ability to, you know, emotionally regulate in front yeah. of your peers, that is huge vulnerability yeah. in my eyes. And then how that child is supported afterwards, I think will will help them or support them in their mm-hmm. healing. Um, so this societal view of what vulnerability and resilience looks yeah. like it's so different from from everybody. Oh I think. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, I just I went on a I went on a tangent there, but I just I think that 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 touches so much on it. This idea, you know, again, we glorify resilience, but we also glorify I feel vulnerability and mm-hmm. what that looks like when we're asking people to be more. Vulnerable. Yeah, we are just asking people to do a lot of different things, aren't we? We're asking people. Yes. Yeah. We're asking yeah, people to right. be resilient. Right. We're asking people to be vulnerable, and they they appear to be these opposite things, but I think really they're two sides of the same coin. And I just think that's another, you bring up a really, really, another really, really important point that resilience isn't just this like static construct that you just have or you don't have. And it doesn't, it's not necessarily stoicism either or or being regulated and strong all of the time. 
And so I think that also requires a lot of shifting the mindset of teachers that vulnerability has a huge place in healing and in resilience um, so that it's part and parcel to the whole process. You know, there's going to be vulnerable moments um, for children at school. And what would it be like if we were also joining them in that vulnerability when we're the adult in the room and modeling what that's like? And I think that it's huge because when you ask, when you invite teachers into this idea of being trauma aware and being curious about behaviors that they see that are perceived to be challenging, you're asking teachers to essentially let go of some of the things that they've learned. And that can be really vulnerable too. So I wonder what it would be like sometimes if we just kind of entered this vulnerable space together and were made, fa- you know, made to feel really safe to do that. I think it would be different. Oh, amazing. Yes. I think that's such a beautiful perspective. Yeah. Oh, wow. I feel like we just covered, there's so much that, um, there's so much wisdom in everything you're saying and I appreciate so much of it. When you say mm-hmm. you're a survivor, can you elaborate on that a little bit and share a little bit about what that means yeah, to definitely. you? Yeah, definitely. So I think that, and this has to do so much with resilience too, doesn't it? Like, cause you asked me before this great question, like maybe you could think about what's contributed to your own resilience. And when I think about, you know, I guess my survival or things that I've been through in my life, it doesn't make sense for me to separate that from my own resilience. Um, and at the same time, I can't really separate my own resilience from my larger family system or my own survival from my larger family system. I don't see myself as independent from them when I think about, you know, adversity from the past that we've been through. And so I think about my family a lot when I think about these ideas of resilience and survival. It's just where my mind instantly goes. Mm -hmm. And so I think that my resilience is just as much there. So I kind of tell the story of them as much as I tell my own. And so I grew up with this kind of multi-generational family system as a child. So There was always me and my brother and my mom and my dad, but also our grandparents and uncles. And we didn't have a really big family, but, you know, there was this multi-generational kind of um, system that we had, which was really supportive. And that kind of allowed for a lot of like exploration and joy and growth. And it fostered, you know, these bonds. But somewhere in there, in our family system, there was always this like, implicit message. And I say implicit because, you know, I was a child and I think this, but I don't always remember the exact things that brought about that mm-hmm. message. Um, yeah. There was this implicit, implicit message that, you know what, you, we can get through anything. We've been through a lot of things. We can get through anything. And so my grandparents were all immigrants. And so was my father. My mother was born in Canada, yet she moved around a lot. And so there were always these stories being told, you know, at around the dinner table about, you know, stories of survival, stories of war, stories of persecution and fear and scarcity and death. And all of these stories were being told. And yet we were kind of in the context of our safe home together and what we had together. So there was this kind of expectation that there's nothing that we can't get through. And sometimes my parent, my grandparents, sorry, were really harsh in teaching this message. I think a lot of immigrant children and, and um, grandchildren understand that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> and so I think that their stories kind of created a bit of a hypervigilance in me. Uh, I remember from a really young age, um, feeling like I was bracing for something bad to happen. 
And I was really lucky to have that balanced out with like the tenderness and care of my parents. They were always there to kind of soothe these disproportionate reactions that I was having to ideas of death and injustice and, and pain. And it's just so odd to think back to when I was a small child and I was carrying around these big ideas of um, survival. And, um, you know, I hadn't experienced any of those things myself, but then this thing that I was bracing for, I guess, through my whole childhood happened. Um, and, you know, there were a lot of things, but the thing that I really think of instantly when I think of myself as a survivor, um, is when I was living in Australia with my partner and I got a phone call saying that my dad had had a devastating stroke, you know, that was, that was something that not only I, he had to survive, which he did, but mm. I had to survive it and our family had to survive it together. And so there was this kind of continuation of, you know, we're a family who has gone through some things and we'll continue to do that. But then it came time to get through some things that were really big and it was so hard Right. And right. thinking yeah. back to that, I think if I was using you know, the trait based approach, the trait based model of resilience, then I wouldn't have called myself resilient at the time. You know, we were going through mm -hmm. things that young adults and families shouldn't have to go through at that age. Um, dealing with my mm -hmm. father's sudden disability and months and months in and out of the hospital and advocating for him and his needs. And really just the change from the family system that we had and the new family system that was kind of um, emerging. And so I don't really look back and think of myself as resilient at the time, but I think, uh, you know, we were resilient as in me and my partner and my brother and my mom and all of our friends who were actually our family. And so it was kind of this shared burden in a lot of ways. It kind of meant that you know, no one, no one had to quote unquote, be strong through the trauma of almost losing our dad in such, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, in such a sudden and unexpected way, no one had to be strong on their own. And so I think perhaps ironically or paradoxically that contributes to someone's strength. But if someone has to go through that, like if I look back and think about going through that on my own or as an individual, that's where I think hmm, it wouldn't be the same. It wouldn't mm -hmm. be the same now. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, Ali, thank you. Yeah, for it, it that. was. It was. Um, it was such a hard. It was such an awful time. And it, looking back on it, <clears throat> you know, we felt, we felt like we were broken, right? Like there was this external view of like resilience that other people could see, you know, but we were doing things that were unthinkable the day before um, this happened to him. And I just, I hope that there's also space um, to recognize that a lot of these things that occurred as much as they were resilience building, they also, they also compromised us in a lot of ways. And a lot of those ways were structural, right? Like we were, we were financially compromised. You know, we were, we were dealing with, as, as a family, we were in the wake of trauma. So we, our, our, our capacity to be there for each other was often compromised. And I just want to make sure that it's when I look back on that, I remind myself that this external view of like, wow, so resilient, you got through it. 
I just, I try to keep in mind how hard it was at the same time and how we had to do unspeakable things and think about and carry out unspeakable things through that pain, you know, and, and it's just, it's the process and how things unfold. If you think about those and connect it back to, to resilience, I mean, like that doesn't, it's, I feel your resilience is always there right? So sure, I gained and was able to access a lot of the resilience that had been fostered when I was young at this difficult time. A few years later, when my dad died, I felt that everything was just completely compromised. Like, and again, this external view of like, everything is okay. You know, she went after his death, she took care of errands related to his passing and she flew back to Vietnam And she left her family again and went back to work and went on a holiday that had been booked before his death and generally just um, stayed alive. I just don't want anyone to ever for one second think that experiencing pain again after you think you've gotten through it, it doesn't mean that you haven't bounced back or you're not strong or you're not resilient enough. Those things don't mean that you no longer have your resilience. It's just not accessible at that moment. What held you together during during that hardship? It was the connections that I have with people that helped me through it. Um, I didn't feel capable of of accessing anything inside of me to get through it. I felt when I was showing up, I was showing up for, for, for my students at the time, or when I was, you know, trying to be a good partner to my husband. And that was, that was for him. So it was these, these bonds that had been previously kind of established that really, that really got me through it. Um, you know, and Mm -hmm. of course, you know, that the same thing with my, with my mom and brother. So my, my surviving family members, um, it was just all about having that, that, that connection that was already there. Yeah, and I'm so glad too, that we're, we're trying to rethink this idea of resiliency because a lot of times it can, it can actually disconnect us from other people when we just use a term like resiliency, um, in a judgmental or oppressive way. And we say, oh, well, you didn't spring back from what happened to you. So you're lacking in resiliency. And so I think that this, um, conversation we're having can only kind of broaden um, the different ways that resiliency can be understood. And I, and that's actually this, this advocacy work has helped me have a more compassionate, um, view of myself and my own trauma history, which is that, okay, maybe the resiliency that I tapped into isn't what I've seen modeled in like, you know, the media or, um, the other people that I know, but it was mine. I know for me, it was the relationships in my life that really um, contribute to my resilience. And, you know, contrary to what I think a lot of people would believe or assume, you know, Mm -hmm. my parents, they struggle with addictions, but they contributed to a lot of my resilience as well when they were able to. It just shifts the mindset of what we think of resilience and who is a part of our own resilience. It's not just us. Yeah. No, it's not. And I like how us. you. Yeah, I like how I you mentioned that. how. Oh, thank you. Uh, you know, imperfect parents by um, you know, by certain standards can also contribute, and I'm just really glad that you said that. This, these are yeah. just such important conversations, and I love everything that you're doing and and creating 
and the way that you use words to really um, bring people into a conversation, I think is incredible and is a skill that a lot of us need and I hope to have to just be able to speak in a way that invites people into the conversation and doesn't put up barriers. Thank so you thank so much. you for and I, that. I love everything that you're doing also. I'm so glad that we've been able to connect on this this shared passion that we have. And the most I think the most interesting thing about it is that we have these different we're in different professions and yet it's the care profession. And it's this recognition that we're in the business mm-hmm. of working with people. And so I'm so glad to have been able to hear your perspective and the questions that you have from your perspective. Also, it really pushes me to think about um, resilience and trauma and survival in a different way. So thank you.